Today we're, we're looking at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 is a harsh chapter. It's dealing basically with one main topic, and that is hypocrisy. Chapter 23 kind of falls into three different sections. The first 12 verses, which we're looking at this morning, Jesus is turning to his disciples and to the multitude that is standing around there and talking to them about the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. And then verses 13 through 36, as a long piece of Scripture, uh, Jesus then turns to the Pharisees and lays in to them. And then the last section of the chapter, we get a glimpse of Jesus' heart for Israel as, as his heart is filled with compassion and love and grief over lost Israel because of what the spiritual leaders and the Pharisees have done over the years. Now, one of the things that God hates the most is hypocrisy because it blocks people or turns people away from really seeing him and knowing him. And that's what the, uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders uh, did to God's chosen people, Israel. In this world, there has always been and there will always be false spiritual leaders who, who say that they represent God, but who really don't. And the Old Testament talks about them, identifies them, and warns people away from them. The New Testament does the same thing. Moses was in conflict with them in Egypt. Jeremiah was fighting them in Judah. Ezekiel faced them and called them foolish prophets that followed their own spirit. Jesus warned of them as false Christs and false prophets who will show great signs and wonders. The Apostle Paul struggled against them as preachers of another gospel in Galatians chapter 1 and called them spreaders of a doctrine of demons when he wrote to Timothy. Peter said they were false preachers who secretly uh, bring a god bring godly a godless excuse me heresies and described them as dogs who return to lick up their own vomit. Jude saw them and called them deluded dreamers who defile the flesh. Harsh language. Paul in Acts chapter twenty uh, chapter twenty summed it up well when he said they were savage wolves who will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And here in Matthew 23, we hear Jesus confront them with a strong denunciation that, as one commentator wrote, blisters and burns as it comes from his lips. Verse 1 all the way through verse 36 is a scathing rebuke of the Pharisees. Not only Pharisees, but all false prophets, all false teachers, all spiritual, uh, false spiritual leaders of any kind. And with that description, we're talking about, well, this is Jesus' words to the leaders, false leaders. It's easy for the regular Christian, uh, th- those who are sitting in the chairs and the pews of churches all across the, the world, to sp- sit back and c- not take those, these verses personally. Ah, that's for those, those horrible, horrible uh, leaders. Jesus is talking to them. I don't have to worry about it. But I would contend that Jesus is speaking to all those who lead astray, people astray and away from the truth of Jesus Christ, whether they're spiritual leaders or anybody else. You probably remember the Barna survey that I noted um, a few weeks back about young adults who had been brought up in the church in one degree or another, but have now left 
and the, the, uh, the survey asked for different reasons why they left. And it, and it said that 50% of them left because they say Christianity is hypocritical. You remember that. That's a scathing indictment on the church, on you, on me, on every believer sitting in chairs and pews, wherever they may be this morning. We've all had moments, speaking for myself, but I'm assuming we've all had moments that we are not real proud of. Whether it's been with our children, whether it's been with our co-workers, whether it's been with our spouses, or, or driving down the road, some jerked us some stupid thing, because it inconveniences me. Those moments that didn't really show Christ. So as we begin this harsh chapter on hypocrisy against the Pharisees, let's, let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak into our own lives. If there is anything that He wants to say to us in this, uh, in this area, allow Him to say that. And I'm coming to you speaking from a very humble position of not being perfect. So this passage has been speaking to me all week long. So if you've got your Bibles or your electronic devices, turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy and and cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher And you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructor, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, Jesus had been dealing with his religious leaders all day long. It's, we're still on Wednesday of that last week uh, here on uh, his life here on earth. Before his crucifixion, he was answering all these questions. And rather than making him look poorly among the multitude, the, his amazing answers actually highlighted their ignorance and their hypocrisy. So Jesus with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and experts of the law all still standing there listening to this conversation because they're in this dialogue back and forth, he turns to the crowd and he turns to the disciples and begins strongly instructing them and warning them about the reality of their religious leaders and why they should not be following their example. False teachers and false spiritual leaders masquerade as those who represent God but do not. And the sad fact is that they, they, uh, they end up condemning the souls of men and women to hell while promising them heaven. We're going to take a look at that a little bit more next week when Jesus turns his attention directly to the Pharisees. But this particular chapter is the greatest single 
tirade, if, if, you, if you will, against the Pharisees in all the passages of Scripture. Jesus totally denounces them. So it's a very difficult chapter. It's a significant chapter. It's a hard one to go through, but it's there, and so we've got to do it. Now, the scenario opens there in verse 1. As I mentioned, he turns to the multitude, he turns to his disciples, and starts talking to them. Now, this is actually his last public address, his last public message uh, that he's giving to the multitude, and it's warning them about these false religious leaders. And he says that they are disqualified because of five, they lack five different things. I wanted to take a look at what those are. First of all, they're they're disqualified because they lacked authority. In verse 2, Jesus says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. What Jesus was actually saying, pointing out there is that the fact that they, they are seen here as those who took the seat that really they didn't deserve. You see, Moses' seat was a title. It wasn't actually, I don't, I don't know if it was actually a chair or a throne there in the synagogue, but it was a title for a place of the primary teacher in the synagogue. And that person taught the Mosaic Law, the chair of Moses. That person was the one who was to articulate the will of God as expressed in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Well, the Pharisees took it upon themselves to sit down, basically, in that place of authority in the synagogues, as if, in fact, they were representatives of God's Word and God's Law, and people had to listen to them. They were actually... Usurpers, they didn't belong there in that position. Throughout the past three years of Jesus' ministry, he was pointing out over and over, and you remember as we went through uh, Matthew, pointing out over and over that the, the, the fact that uh, these people were uh, hypocrites, they were leading people away from God rather than drawing them towards God. And they were substituting the traditions that they had invented, that they had come up with, for the commandments of God. And we looked at that in chapter 15, pointed that out very clearly there. So they were without a God-given authority and without an authoritative message. Now, did they ever speak the truth? Well, yes, when they actually were reading the Old Testament scrolls. I mean, God's Word is always God's Word, no matter uh, who's reading them. But then they embellished them, they enhanced them, they made them better, but they obscured them by the thousands of rules and regulations and traditions that they imposed upon the people. And the reason they lack authority was because they were not sent by God, like the prophets of the Old Testament, sent by God. They were the spokespeople of God. They spoke for God. Most of them started out by saying, thus saith the Lord, right? God's authority they spoke by. It was obvious that the Pharisees didn't have that. Why was it that so often the multitude were amazed at Jesus' teaching? They were amazed at what? The authority by which he spoke. Which means they weren't used to that by the Pharisee. The Pharisees spoke what they wanted to speak. They spoke about things that other people had said or other people had written. They did not have that authority from God. Now we've got, still got many today who preach a gospel other than what is taught here. We've got pastors out there preaching the health, wealth gospel, name it and claim it uh, gospel. You don't find that in Scripture, but it works for them, and some of them are making millions off of it. 
We have many who have fallen into preaching just a social gospel, and they've twisted Scripture to conform to society, to conform to culture, to conform to the world. And we know that Paul says very clearly, do not conform to the pattern of this world. So they lack authority because their message is not coming from God. Look at verse 3, which seems a little confusing here after that first statement. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Really? But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. What Jesus was saying here, and this is our second point, is that the Pharisees lacked integrity. He's telling them that when they actually teach the unadulterated law of Moses found there in the scrolls, when they read from the Old Testament scrolls, that's okay. You're to follow that because that's actually God's Word. But do not get sucked into all the other stuff that they've added on top of that. Integrity, part of integrity is practicing what you preach, being honest about it. Integrity means you live what you say. They didn't do that. They had no integrity. That's how, that's how it will always be with false spiritual leaders. Oh, they, they may preach morality. They may have a wonderful ethical code that they try to teach and, and preach. But they end up seeing themselves kind of above it all. You all, you do this. I wonder sometimes if they feel that they've got a special pass. Because God seems to be blessing the ministry, and so... I can do whatever I want. God's going to continue to bless. The Pharisees demanded that everybody else live a certain way, but they always found ways around those things to do what they wanted to do anyway. But they looked good at doing it. I mean, they were dressed, right? So Jesus is saying, don't use their life as your example. As, they, as they're preaching the truth, the whole, are they preaching the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And are they living by the truth which they preach? A very important question to ask. It's a very important question for us, every one of us, to ask of ourselves as well. Thirdly, they lack sympathy. Verse 4. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Now, as we know, they had developed this very sophisticated and elaborate system of rules and regulations and ceremonies and rituals and laws, and they imposed these all on the people. On the people. And Jesus said they are heavy and they're cumbersome loads. And the people were told that if they do enough good things, that if, they're, if they obey enough here, um, and more so than they're disobeying or more than the bad things, then they'll go to heaven, but if not, probably going to go to hell. And they never tried to lighten that load or to help them remove it or help them find a way to be, be obedient. It was impossible to keep them all. So because they didn't have any answer for that, they just kind of added to the laws, added to the load, added to that cumbersome burden, never trying to lighten it. And then because a load of rules kept getting heavier, it was impossible to keep them. And then that then added the load of guilt, right? You, you, you know what that's about. That load of guilt that piles up on top of that when, when we do something wrong. You remember that old hymn, He Touched Me? Shackled by a heavy burden neath a load of guilt and shame. That's what Jesus is talking about here, the heavy, cumbersome loads. Then the hand of Jesus touched me. And now I'm no longer the same. The Pharisees couldn't offer that. 
They lacked sympathy. There, there, there was no sense of kindness. There was no sense of graciousness trying to help the people. Quite the contrast to Jesus, right? Who, who said, my yoke is what? My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Come follow me. The fourth thing that they lacked is spirituality. I say that because a spiritual life is from within, right? It's, it's not what is on the outside. Everything was from the outside on their part. It is not the heart. All their religious activities was for show. They, they loved to be honored and revered. They loved the praises of the people. They wanted to show on the outside how pious they were so they could get the honor and the reverence. You remember back in Matthew 6 when we were studying the Sermon on the Mount, verse 1 says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. There's nothing spiritual about that. When the Pharisees gave their alms, they gave them with a big show. They, they, they had these uh, metal bins that they would drop their, uh, their, their alms into, which would make a clatter. And Jesus said, don't, don't sound your trumpets. Don't make a clamor about it. Don't let people know. When they, were, when they prayed, they prayed loudly in the middle of the synagogues or out, out on the street corners. It's to show how holy they were, right? To show how pious they were. Everything was for show. It was all on the outside. Even the fasting that they did, they did, it was all for show. They put an ash on their faces to look pale and white, and they went around with this horrible, uh, sad, hungry look on their face. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, they, they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. That's all they're going to get. They're not going to get anything from God. Everything's on the outside so people can notice them. It's kind of a religious game they were playing. There was nothing on the inside, nothing from the heart. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, you'll, you'll find that every one of us who serves Christ will ultimately be judged as to the heart, as to the motives of the heart, the intents of the heart. Why? Because that's the true standard. That's where God looks. Early in the Gospels, Jesus had already re, uh, referred to the Pharisees as white tombs and, and unmarked graves concealed by grass, broken pots covered with silver dross, wolves in sheep's clothing, wells without water, cloaks covering sin. And they're all standing there listening to him talk to the multitude. Can you imagine what's going through their mind? points out the fact that they're all large uh, they're they're all wearing these large phylacteries and and longer fancier garments with fancy long tassels on the, on the bottom of their robes now what's he talking about when he mentions large phylacteries and large tassels well there are four verses in the old testament two in Exodus chapter 13 and two in Deuteronomy as well, referring to the commandments of God that are to be like, quote, a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead. What does that mean? Well, to the ancient Jews of the time, they understood it well. It, it, was, to, uh, it was symbolic of saying that the commandments of God are to be the controlling factor in what we think and what we do. Really very simple. The forehead and the hands, everything we think, everything that we do, should be in line with the Word of God. Uh, Paul said basically the same thing, didn't he? In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it how? All to the glory of God. The Old Titan Jews got it. 
They understood what that meant. But as the centuries passed, and the Jews began to develop an external, legalistic, outward approach to religion, they literally began putting the law of God on their hands and on their forehead. By the way, there's no record of that, uh, of phylacteries, until about 400 B.C., which puts it between what they call the intertestamental time, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's where that began to be developed. So what are phylacteries? The word basically means a means of protection, kind of like a charm or an amulet. It may have developed because the Egyptians and the pagans of that time around Israel wore charms, to ward off evil spirits. My wife and I, when we were in the Côte d'Ivoire, people, the spirit worshippers, they wore what they call fetishes, the same kind of thing that had been blessed and given to them by the witch doctors to protect them from evil spirits. So the Jews developed these phylacteries kind of like charms, perhaps to ward off evil spirits, or, and, excuse me, and or, (laughs) perhaps, a way to obey God's Word without having to obey God's Word. See, if you're wearing it, that takes care of it, right? It doesn't have to go here. They don't have to put it into practice, kind of like carrying a big black Bible around, right? Or having a big Bible sitting on your coffee table and it sits there as a decoration. It's never opened. It becomes a decoration. So these phylacteries were little square boxes. Little square boxes covered in black leather from a ceremonial, ceremonial clean animal, of course. It had to be that. It had long leather straps, which, by the way, connected to the box with 12 stitches, one stitch for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Very religious. They were strapped, uh, those straps were used to bind them to their forehead and their left hand and arm because the left hand was closer to the heart. In each box, they put the four sections of the Mosaic Law, which talked about putting God's commands on your forehead and on your hands. Exodus 13, verse 9, Exodus 13, verse 16, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13. Those were written out, put in those little boxes. Now, these were normally worn during the time of prayer, but the Pharisees, well, they wore it all the time. I mean, that's how pious they were. And it wasn't that they just wore them, which would have been bad enough, but verse 5 says they made them wide and made them large. The bigger the box, the more pious you were. Boy, I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe they had these big, huge things sitting on their forehead. Verse 5 also says they made long tassels on the borders of their garments. Back in Numbers chapter 15, uh, little tassels were to be worn by those who were prophets and by those who spoke God's word to kind of set them apart for a purpose. But it's just kind of like a little fringe on the bottom of the hem of their garment. But the Pharisees, always taking things to the extreme, made that fringe bigger and wider to show everyone again how spiritual God considered them. But just by doing that, it actually showed their lack of spirituality because all on, on the outside. 
And then the final lack that, that I see here comes from verse uh, 6. They lacked humility. They loved the place of honor at banquets and the, and the most important seats in the synagogue. They, they loved to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. They wanted to sp- uh, sit at the speaker's table. They wanted to be on his right hand or his left hand. That, that was the place of honor at, at banquets. In the synagogue, the important seats were up on the platform where everybody could see them. Not only that, they wanted to be recognized wherever they went, in the marketplace or in the streets, anywhere they went. They, wanted to be, they, they, expected, to be, they expected people to refer to them as rabbi. They liked formal titles. They wanted to be acknowledged as the great ones, as great spiritual leaders. The title rabbi basically coming from, from them or what they were expecting kind of said, oh, great and learned one who knows all the wonderful th- uh, things of Scripture and teaches us all, all the wonders of God. That's, that's kind of what they were looking for. And down in verse 9, they, they love to be called father so-and-so. In verse 10, they love to be called instructor, literally master teacher. They wanted to be the source of all instruction and all knowledge. They wanted to be the source of all spiritual life. So Jesus to the multitude is calling out the Pharisees about all of that. Now look at verse 8 and watch what happens in the midst of this. Jesus may very likely have turned now just particularly to his disciples. The others are all there. At this point, it doesn't say that specifically, but it, it seems like it's very logical to me because he knows that in just a few days, he's going to send them out on mission to preach the gospel. And he says, don't take the title teacher, rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, he said, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. You're all brothers together, working to, together to accomplish the command that I'm going to give you. Go and make disciples of all nations. You've only got one teacher, and that's me, Jesus said. And soon it's going to be the Holy Spirit. He and He alone is your teacher. You're, you're going to speak and preach what He tells you and nothing else. Nothing is to come from yourself. And don't you be call, allowing people to be calling you rabbi and t- take that proud, proud title like the Pharisees do. Now, are titles bad? No, not necessarily. It depends on how they're used or what you're expecting when people use a title for you. But if it becomes a pride issue, and it's your title that gives you the authority to say whatever you want to say, there's a problem. Verse 9, And do not call anyone on earth Father, for you have one Father and He is in heaven. Now what's that all about? I mean, a lot of people call their dad's Father. I didn't. Had nothing to do with this verse, though. I called my dad Pop because he called his dad Pop. So what's Jesus saying? Jesus isn't referring to our earthly fathers here. He's, he's speaking spiritually. There's not a person on earth that has given us spiritual life, right? Nobody. The Sanhedrin members like to be called Father as if they were the source of spiritual life. Jesus said, you only have one Father and He's in heaven. We are given a new spiritual life by the Holy Spirit. No spiritual leader should be given that awesome, one-of-a-kind title. It belongs to God the Father and Him alone. 
And verse 10 says, Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The Greek word here has a connotation of master. You've only got one master. And that's Jesus himself. Last week we talked about the Messiah's being Lord. That, that's that same connotation, Adonai. We declare with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. He becomes our master. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves to God. That's the act of someone uh, understanding that Jesus uh, and the Father are Lord, are mas- is the master. He is Lord, he's master, he's teacher, he's instructor, he's all of that. The rest of us hear from him and teach his truth that's coming from him. That's why we stick, try to stick so closely to God's Word. It's way too easy for church leaders or pastors, after having tasted some success, to start thinking that you know, they're, they're, they're all that, right? And they stop seeking the Lord. They stop digging into Scripture to see what Scripture is truly, actually saying. And it's easy to, to use a partial Scripture to, to bring around to what they're trying to get across, using it for their own benefit. And that's what the Pharisees did. And unfortunately, it hasn't stopped all through the ages. And leaders continue, unfortunately, to draw people away from the Lord and inoculate them from the truth. And it becomes so much harder to draw them back. We're going to talk about that next week a little bit. As we talk about the fact uh, in verse 15 where it says, they make them twice as much a child of hell as they are. And he says to them in verse 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. <laughs> Nobody these days likes that, huh? We, none of us ought to be servants, right? But God does things differently <laughs> than the world does. You see, if we are going to be a servant, we're not going to have all of those titles. We're not going to be seeking those titles and be seeking the the honor and the respect that, that they bring. Servant leadership, that's what Jesus wants. If you want to be great, serve. Jesus served and he washed feet and he gave his life. Back in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to do what? But to serve. He was the greatest example to give his life then as a ransom for many. And that's the point here. So the one who is greatest isn't the one with the most degrees or the most titles or the highest rank, or, but whoever is the lowest servant, whoever serves the best. And then verse 12 is that paradoxical divine statement that uh, we're quite familiar with. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Not the way of the world. And again, Jesus was our perfect example. He humbled himself to become a man and to die on the cross, and God lifted him up. God exalted him. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 5, speaking to the elders of the church. Be shepherds. We, we have this kind of a rosy concept of shepherds now in, the church, in church settings. But back in the day, shepherds was the lowliest of occupations. They were stinky, smelly people because they were among stinky and smelly animals. And they were to stay, stay away over there. But he's saying, be shepherds. 
for God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. There needs to be that willing heart to serve as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. That's our hope. That's what we're looking for. Not the glory here on earth. Hypocrisy is a horrible, horrible thing. Throughout his three years of ministry, Jesus was constantly calling out the Pharisees about their hypocrisy because it does so much damage. Here in Matthew 23, he spends 36 verses speaking about this one topic. The 12 we looked at today, yes, he was speaking against the Pharisees, but he was warning everybody not to be like that. He was giving us examples of what we should not be because of the horrible spiritual damage it causes. As we mentioned earlier, one of the reasons that so many young people left the church was because they what they perceived in churches. I looked up a definition on hypocrisy, and it says this. Hypocrisy is a practice of engaging in the same behavior or activity for which one criticizes another, or the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's, one's own behavior does not conform. In moral psychology, it goes on to say, it is a failure to follow one's own expressed moral rules and principles. That's pretty clear. In other words, not practicing what you preach or what you believe. Unfortunately, this happened in homes far more than we want to admit. It did in ours. It did in ours, particularly with our son. We're not proud of how we handled some situations. And if we could go back, we would do that and have a redo. But we can't. And God has forgiven us for that. And we can look ahead. We have a good relationship with our son. But we're not proud of how we handle those things because they weren't Christ-like. And I was a pastor, for goodness sake. I should have known better. Certainly not only parents, young people everywhere in churches are watching leadership. They're watching worship teams. They're watching Sunday school teachers. We have to be so, so careful all the time. Now, I think it's easy for Christians to say, hey, you know, we're not perfect yet. We make mistakes. We're human. And that's true. Not denying that. And we sing that song, and I, I kind of like this song. You know, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be, because he's still working on me. And that's true. God is lovingly and patiently con uh, working, continuing to work on us to make us what he wants us to be. And we need to be loving and patient with each other within the church body as God continues to work in our lives and to perfect us. But I wonder if Christians don't often use that as ex an excuse. Eh, God's still working me. That's the way I am. Get over it. I'll get there someday. And on top of that, 
The world doesn't have to be loving and patient with us, right? And they're not, most of them. Neither are our kids. I don't know if you've experienced it. Our, our kids aren't very loving and patient at times. Oh, we say, you know, well, they're, they're just as hypocritical as we are, but probably more so. Well, perhaps it's true. Not an excuse for us, though. Listen, we are held to a higher standard. We are held to a standard of perfection, standard of holiness. That's high. It's as high as a bar can go. God says, be holy because I am holy. He wouldn't tell us to do that if that was not possible. And I can tell you with all assurance that hypocrisy is not part of holiness. That includes our lifestyle, not just the fact that Jesus lives in us. I think it's easy sometimes to say, well, you know, when God look, looks at us, he, just, he sees Jesus and he sees the purity and the holiness of Jesus. Again, I think sometimes that's an excuse for us. He wants to transform us. Now again, please understand, I'm not picking on anybody. It's in Scripture here, and so we're talking about this. But Scripture is very clear about the fact that we have a new nature, right? We are new creations. He's given us that promise. He's given that a possibility. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So that means that if we think differently, we're also going to what? We're going to act differently as well. And all we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. Our inward changed lives by the power of the Holy Spirit should be evidenced by our outward actions and words and reactions and emotions. Paul in Romans 6 exclaimed, What shall I say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? <laughs> by no means. He's writing to the Christians there in Rome, Come on guys, let's get it together. He goes on to say, We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So I guess the question is just we just need to ask ourselves personally, so how am I doing? <laughs> how am I doing in this area? How are we doing at home, at work, on the road, the grocery store, at church? A couple of weeks ago I had a very interesting and strong conversation with my son. Uh, maybe do some serious reflecting. He actually called me because he wanted me to, or Nancy and I, to pray for a guy that he met at the gym. He, he felt that he had had a divine appointment and he had an opportunity to share Christ and he was so excited and it was just, just so easy to talk to him, but it, he had to spend the time to let the other guy speak out everything that he wanted to speak without being condemning or, or, uh, or, or, or getting back in, in his face. So, that was kind of exciting. Then the conversation uh, kind of turned to how Christians and churches everywhere are. They're, they're all hypocrites, Dad. <laughs> uh, he says, I see it all the time, and everybody else sees it too. So they, they, all they do is judge people. You've got to allow people just to, to speak to you and not, not, not judge them first. Well, I kind of bristled at the strength in which he was speaking about this, talking about this. You know, but it gave me pause. It sounded so unfair. It sounded judgmental on his part. 
But you know, I've been kind of thinking about that ever since. Think about that conversation. How do people see my life? I see it pretty good. I think it's easy for us to see that. How do other people see it? How do people within the church see it? How do people outside see my life? People are watching. So is God. I think I mentioned this once uh, way back a number of years ago when I was a youth pastor. I don't usually like putting bumper stickers on my car, but I put this one on because I, I, I loved what it said. It says, despite inflation, the wages of sin is still the same. I said, oh, that's so cool. I stuck that on the back of my bumper. But boy, I always knew that bumper sticker was there on the back of my bumper. And my driving changed <laughs> because I knew people were looking at that and assumed that the driver was probably a Christian. And I could not be a hypocrite as I was driving. Do we do this all on our own? No. It's the power of God who transforms us. The Holy Spirit lives in us, right? Since we live by the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We are living by the Spirit. The Spirit changes. He transforms us. We need to be conscious of our daily routines, our daily words, our daily actions, so that we will not bring uh, uh, anything detrimental to, to the Lord's name. And then the fruit of the Spirit, that's all part of living with the Spirit, right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's a tough one sometimes. I understand that. I thought, you know what I need to start doing every morning when I wake up? says, Lord, fill me and activate within me the fruit of the Spirit today so that people will see you. We can't change the past. The past is done. God can forgive us for that. But we can change today. We can change tomorrow with the power of the Holy Spirit. In a moment, the worship team is going to come and, and sing and lead us in, in another song. And the first, first verse goes, Everybody falls sometimes. Got to find the strength to rise from the ashes and make a new beginning. And that beginning comes through Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that we are not left helpless <laughs> in and of ourselves. We can't change. We can't change our actions. We've got personalities. We, we've got this sinful nature that, that, uh, that we were born with just because that's what happened way back in the beginning. But we've also got this new nature in Christ, the new nature the Holy Spirit has given to us. And Father, I pray that you would help us just, just be so conscious of our lives and how we portray you. Because that's what we're doing. We're portraying you. We're portraying your bride, the church. And Father, we can't do anything about other churches, but we, we can not allow that to be who we are. And we pray that we will be a church that will be a light, a church that will be full of integrity and spirituality, being led by your Holy Spirit. And as people come in, as people come to, to some of our activities, as, as we build relationships with our neighbors and our friends, that all they would see is Christ. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you aren't just weighing us down with heavy burdens, but you have given us the way to be, have that lifted off of us. And that's through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.